March 13, 1997, Boulder, Colorado. We're talking to Christine Caldwell. Um, she's a, um, an author of three books, one which has been published already called Getting Your Body Back. Getting Our Bodies Getting Back. Getting Our Bodies Back. And um, another one that's at the publisher. And say the name of that one. That one is. We're eating here, so. You have to forgive the mouthfuls of noodles. <laughs> the slurping sounds. Yeah, the slurping. The second book is called Getting in Touch. Uh -huh. A new guide for body-centered psychotherapies. It's being put out by Quest Books. It'll be out in November. Oh, great. Great. And the third book that you're working on, do you have a title for that Yes, yet? that's called Dying to be Born. And that is? That's a book on birth and death and its relationship to a playful life. The, Living a playful life. Yeah. That's good. I know. I think so far that looks like the magnum opus, so uh -huh. I'm really excited. Yeah. Sylvan was telling me about the workshop you did this weekend mm -hmm. and Brian about the play. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So I'm, we have a very short time to talk. And I want to actually pretend like that's true. Like speaking of birth and death, like if we would assume perhaps like in this situation that we have the next half hour for you to kind of, like, there's two men over here, it's Sylvan and Cal and myself, and we're just, you know, human beings and we're here because um, like there's a possibility for you to transmit something before you go. Mm -hmm. Like you can, um, the people that will be reading what we write here is are people who are committed, have committed their lives to transformation, have the evolution, to, to moving beyond what <clears throat> is, is normally would would normally be allowed to them in a normal human life, you know, mm. if they didn't do work. They these people are working on themselves, mm -hmm. and they're committed to that, and they, mm -hmm. they love it, and it inspires them, and the thing is that you've been doing this for years, and, and these people are new people. Mm -hmm. Like, we're, they're just coming into this, and they, and what, what we'd like you to do is just speak about some of the tricks that you've learned about working with people, like how how do you take a person who says they want to learn something from you, and, and like what's the most important thing you want them to get? Like where are you going with people, and how how do you how do you create um, a chance for them to have something else, or something more, or something different for themselves? Like, what's the purpose of your work? Well, in a very general sense, I would say the purpose of my work is to remove any obstructions that a person is holding uh, to living a full, unhappy life, a fulfilled, satisfying, happy life. And um, another, another interest of my work is if you look at the concept of um, in, in evolutionary biology of uh, 
yeah. adaptive pressure. Mm-hmm. And you look at the idea in a Darwinian sense that uh, people or in species change because they are pushed to do so by a change in the environment. That's a model of change that we see a lot on the planet. And right. that is certainly, you know, if you have a private practice in psychology or psychotherapy, you see a lot of people who come in who are just, they're being pushed to be different because of some pressure in their environment, whether it's a bad marriage or an ulcer or their life falling apart for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So they're using strategies, they're at, their, they're at an evolutionary level that's not meeting the environment. And so that's a, an important, I think any kind of transformational system has to address that issue, has to organize itself about how to answer that question of what is different, what are different pressures asking me to do, how are they asking me to mutate. However, I'm also interested in going a step beyond that and questioning that as we evolve as a species, as we evolve also as individuals, that we can change ahead of pressure. In other words, we can change or transform without needing the school of hard knocks or adaptive pressure to do so, that we can change for the joy of changing, and that's what I'm calling play. Okay. So you can live a playful life, rather than a life that simply reacts to pressure. And we need to learn how to react to pressure. That's the first skill. So that would be sort of a... So, change for the joy of changing yeah. is play, uh-huh. and most people fear change. Mm-hmm. So, how do you get from a person who fears change to a person who loves change? Okay. Can I ask you the favor? I think they've forgotten my um, spring rolls, vegetarian spring rolls. Sometimes you have to goose them. Something's coming. Nope, that's not it. No. <laughs> um, okay, so how can you get someone from fearing change to going, oh boy, to change? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, really, that's what I would call transformation. Mm-hmm. So it's a total, a total mm-hmm. shift in relationship. Yeah. To change, yeah. A person fears change for a good reason. It's always a good reason. Particularly, it's a good historical reason. Um, that's sort of pretty standard psychological material there. Um, however, uh, you can alert someone to that it was a good reason and now that reason isn't there anymore and they still don't change and they still fear change. That's because the habit energy of not changing and of clutching at the change option is pretty well wired in at that point. Because anything that we practice for a long time becomes actually almost hardwired into the system. 
So you're actually. Thank you. I missed it. You are the number four. I thought this was different. number Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, and so we got it switched. Oh well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So you got to try these. These are really cool. Sauce is great. Yeah, the sauces they make it here by scratch, and I've never been able to duplicate it at home. So. Um, I'm fine if you just want to bite it off so But I know you might not be fine with I'll, not biting it I'll off. I'll see what I can do here. Okay. Um, so the habit energy is still in particularly, it lodges in all the different systems of the body, but it lodges quite strongly into the nervous system and the musculoskeletal system. So you have to actually give the person different experiences that will help that rerouting occur, help the old pattern actually get out of the nervous system and put in new, uh, more playful, particularly playful in terms of the nervous system, the nervous system having more, uh, almost a network of options rather than a sort of single channeled option. And that's really been fairly well substantiated uh, with some of the new neurobiopsych stuff that's coming out uh-huh. in terms of neural netting and uh, how neurons uh, develop over time through habituated use. Uh-huh. And is somewhat the purpose of my first book. Given the short amount of time we have, I would kind of like to use what you just said as a basis or a, um, like a, a context for speaking mm-hmm. about what you're working on currently in terms of birth and death. Okay. And because it's, uh, I might be wrong, but I would assume that it's really coming from the same, you know, you're, you're basically looking at the joy of death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the joy necessarily. Joy is not a requirement. Uh-huh. Transformation. But the ability to um, grow consciously, curiously, and openly into mm-hmm. a death experience. So, what would you? What do you mean by a death experience? The. I mean, any kind of change could really be death. Is that what you're talking absolutely. about? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we can look at literal death, and that's important. But we can also look at metaphorical death, yeah. the job and the relationship, things like that. But it's also the ability to deconstruct what you've constructed. So um, it's the ability, you know, if you look at most structures that we're alert to and aware of, they're all composed of a, a lot of different elements. And so far, chemistry says that we get down to this periodic table, you know, and all there's these elements on it. And that what life seems to do is constantly play with putting those elements up into a certain structure and fixed position for a while and then deconstructing it and playing again with the elements in a new way that, you know, matter can neither be created nor destroyed at the elemental level. So when you die, you go into, you know, carbon gases and all kinds of great minerals and things like that. And, and then the universe gets to play with that again. 
is. So the sense is, is that if we get really friendly towards the act of deconstruction, then we know how to play, then we know how to transform on a regular basis. But it's a double-edged sword because we also have to know how to construct as well as deconstruct. You won't deconstruct until you know how to construct. So in terms of teaching a person to be friendly with the process of deconstruction. How do you do that? Well, there's... I'm trying to think if I should sort of route it into a more logical format. There is a process that you. I forgot how to language this the easiest way. In order to deconstruct, in order to really get friendly with the death experience, we have to fully come into form. So, what happens a lot of us, the fear of death for me arises because we are actually not completely embodied. We're not completely into the form that we've chosen or that we're, we're largely occupying. Yeah. So, you know, in a lot of psychology, this is, again, fairly standard stuff. It's called wholeness and fragmentation. And you fragment off parts of yourself and you're not whole and you've got to get whole and being whole is groovy. Okay. It's true, it is groovy. But also deconstructing is just as important. Mm -hmm. That's the part that psychology doesn't have as much a handle on. So the sense, though, is, is there's actually some fairly classic procedures for helping the person birth themselves into a full form. And that then that form is allowed to have its expression in the world. And once it's allowed to have its expression in the world, you can go, ah, and deconstruct. What do you mean, have its expression in the world? Well. What are you here for? What do you want to be here for? At any one moment, mm -hmm. you know, you can ask that as a large or a small question. Um, that at this moment, how, you know, what's the act of fully occupying my form and fully playing full out mm -hmm. in that form, not. Uh, one of my meditations that I do, that I actually uh, constructed myself, was that I meditate um, and I say, uh, I am matter. I fully occupy matter, you know, the matter of me. Right. And I am energy. I fully occupy my energy. Mm -hmm. All the quivering in me, I want to occupy all of that, every last quiver. And then I am also space, and I occupy that space. And I also have arisen from the void, which I think of as death in that sense. And I will return there. And that that's actually a mystery that it's probably going to take the rest of my life to get comfortable with. That death is, by its very nature, a mystery, as is birth. Mm -hmm. uh, the fetus doesn't know what's at the other end of that birth canal, you know, That's right. except that it's going to be profoundly different than anything they've ever known. So it's the same routing phenomenon. 
so that sense is is that you're you you come fully into form and the, the moment you fully occupy your form the expression of that form knows what to do and then can relax and deconstruct so you you help people with their fear of death by actually helping them fully occupy mm -hmm. their matter, their energy, their space, and, and help them to start to get comfortable with the fact that there's this mystery on the other end of all of it anyway, and that actually, see, we, I think, you know, we were primitive before, and it, we had to use religion to try to make some kind of story up about what yeah. happens after death, you know, mm -hmm. and before birth. Which is all what all religions do, and I don't think we are in as much need for that anymore. That I I would like to actually get comfortable with not knowing, and the more I actually get comfortable with it as a mystery, the more I can come into form and let form deconstruct. And so, I'm rambling a little bit in there. But no, that's that, great. Um, this thing about not knowing, mm -hmm. like what you're saying, is you're you're living with, with a, a large number of questions as, as, as um, mystery, mm -hmm. as a mystery. Mm -hmm. And then you're, you're functioning in this state called not knowing. Mm -hmm. and or curiosity, you could call it curiosity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm still, at, I'm still at the question of bringing a person who, who doesn't have those experiences. You know, most people, you know, are just terrified and shut down and, and they, they've got a survival conversation or survival strategy that has worked a long time ago and it's just the, the pattern that they're stuck in. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're up against um, um, like really bringing that, bringing a person into a totally different way of, of existence. Person, no. There's always a part of that person that's not doing that. There's always some part of them that's yeah. not doing that. You mean it's free of that? Is that yeah. what you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that it gets really fun to find out where it is and just start putting your attention on it. What you pay attention to will grow. So that's one strategy I can say for helping people like that. There's a lot of more practical strategies. But so give me an example. Like you, you fix it. You know. A person's very afraid. They're afraid that if they tell their husband the truth about X, Y, and Z, the, their husband will leave them. Okay. There's, they're largely taken over with that. That's actually what they're aware of. However, their whole being is still there. It's just not being paid attention to. And so what I might do on a, just a very practical level is I say, I, I notice it as you talk to me about this. Your eyes are squeezing and your breath is going tight. I also notice there's this stroking sensation you're doing with your hand. Let's just put some attention on this for a second, on the stroking sensation in your hand. Does that part of you feel like it's in fear? Well, maybe it's not. So well, what, what's, you know, just let's just pay attention to it. What you pay attention to will grow, and as it grows, it can help support and 
itself be a resource for rewiring the nervous system towards this, the part that's whole, so the rest of the body. The, and I'm sorry, you can say that again, the, the, the rest of the body? Yeah. So in other words, in, if, we're in a, in, if we're in any fixed position, mm. it's because we're not aware of our whole body. Or the whole of our experience. Mm -hmm. Better way to put it. Yeah. I tend to see that in the, in the sense of bodies. But. That's why I've laid you in. This is a, such a great place. I feel like I'm a little bit in the third world whenever I come here. Yeah. I'm going to slurp for me. Oh, no, I don't have to do that. Nope. Oh, but you should, though. I know. That's sort of the more Asian way to do it. This, I'll be well Caucasian. Thanks. There's no state, there's no resource, there's no nothing outside that person's body that they need to get over that fear. Don't they need a volition? <clears throat> and no. the desire? It's already there. The desire is there. Instructed, <laughs> but it's there. Any any creature that plays will have it. When um, I'm sure that you're around some people who play. What what are they like? They're more creative. They're more curious. They're more um, creative problem solvers. They are more light-hearted in the sense of not less fixed positions, ability to change a position when it no longer works. Um, um, more fun to be around. One thing that, that I think I should backpedal though for a second because. When we look at the idea, you know, when I said anybody who plays mm -hmm. has this, trauma can and will obstruct play. It will cover it over because it becomes too expensive and too risky. Too risky, yeah. So one of the things that is remedial for some people is to really unravel and do sort of, in a sense, classical work with um, healing trauma. Mm -hmm. So, um, like we were doing in the workshop on the weekend, we could say that play requires two things, two S's, safety and spare. Spare? Spare. And i got to think of another word for that, but so far I like the two S's idea, yeah. so it has to be spare. So <clears throat> you have to be safe enough. If your environment isn't safe enough, you you can't play and therefore you can't you you can't afford to not fear change and also you need spare time spare energy and spare neurons those are the three spares now if 
you look at, let's say, situations of extreme oppression mm -hmm. in uh, war-torn areas, um, in oppression, the first thing you have to do is stop the oppression. You know, you can't... I don't think we can lose sight of the, the immense need to do social justice work because if if a person, if it isn't safe for someone to play, then all this is a moot point. Right. By play, could you also use the word create? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Live a creative life, live a, yeah. the artist's way, so. Julia Cameron's work, you know. You bet. Self-expression. Uh, Self-expression uh, self is part of it, but not all of it. Mm -hmm. Are there other? You said Julia Cameron. She has a book that you that you like. It's called The Artist's Way. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Are there other? Books or, or sources like that that you really like? For creativity? What's it called? For creativity, you mean? Yeah, for just, no, that's in alignment with the work that you do with people that supports, you know, that's like a leveraging tool that you use with people. Gives them context or gives them foundation. For looking at relationships, I really like Gain, Gain Katie Hendricks's book, Conscious Loving. Hmm, I yeah. think that's a real sort of next millennium look at how to run relationships as a transformational tool. Okay. They just came out with a new book called The Corporate Mystic. Oh, really? Which they're hoping is going to do the same thing for organizations. Yeah. Huh. I haven't read it yet. There's a book called Flow. Flow, and the guy's last name is unbelievable. I wouldn't even want to begin to try to pronounce okay. it. It's like some Eastern European that looks like it's an alphabet, not a name. Yeah. Might start with a C. All right. That's a good one. Okay. I'm really frustrated by the lack of time because there's a lot of places we could go, but they would take more time. What do you do with frustrated players? Like, <laughs> get off your agenda. <laughs> Something else really? is required. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Something else is required. Let's try. You could think of a playful question to ask me. Yeah. Um, Just go where you're interested. Um, sometimes when I'm playing, I like um, I, I reach the limits of my body in terms of energy and just exhaustion, just basically sleep, mm -hmm. and that pisses me off. But say about that. You mean you want to play more mm. and you're too tired? Uh, I'm, it's like I want to play more and I just uh, reach 
exhaustion. You know, it's like it's like at some point I need some sleep. There's a the actual play is not the only thing we need. Sleep is another thing we need. Yeah, well, play during sleep, right? Uh, no, I don't think we have to play all the time. I think that sleep is its own legitimate phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, just to to rest. I call it just rest. Resting, I think, is actually um, creates the spare. Yeah. <clears throat> Work creates the spare too, because by working you access the resources that enable you to play. You know, the money, the time. The do you think it's possible, or how do you reclaim? How do you reclaim neurons? How do you create spare neurons? Well, actually, that one is pretty much a biological given. We've already got plenty into spare unless we have massive brain damage. Okay. We have so many more neurons than we need to just be a lizard, mm-hmm. you know, and do lizard stuff. They're all there already. We don't have... That's... It's a wonderful gift we've gotten. So, we got spare neurons. Yeah, no problem. Well, then talk about being. Being. Yeah. Sort of the being doing thing, and no, <clears throat> more like um, I know the ex- it's my experience that when a person really changes, it's not what they do that changes; it's who they are that changes, and who they are is their being. And so, mm, there's this great, beautiful poem. It's almost like a haiku. For what I do is who I am. This, for what I. For what I do is who I am. Oh my God, the last line's the killer and I don't remember it. For this I came, I think, is the last line. For this I'm here, something like that. But, yes, there is a being difference, but it arose out of a doing difference. When you're working with people, I think you're really working with their being. I mean, if you were just working with what they're doing, you'd be a behavioral scientist. Yeah, but I think behaviorism's got some cool stuff to it. Basically, I don't feel afraid of doing anymore. I used to have that sort of, you know, rap about, you know, it's all about being and doing this sort of capitalistic blah, 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 or, you know, or, um, you know, all the sort of new age stuff against doing and accomplishing and having ambition and all that. And I don't think that's necessary. I think it might be just as unbalanced as, as an emphasis on doing. Uh, particularly, I, I really look at that in terms of social activism as well. That it's, it, I don't think it is enough to meditate on your cushion. So I think, uh, and play, you know, the play material, when you really look deeply at the play material, it's saying that too, that if you don't do something, play is an activity. It's always an activity. Right, right. It's an action. So, the, yes, you're working with being, but you're also working with doing it. So, but, so how do you work with, how do you, How do you play with being as a as you know, in your in your work with people in your play with people? How do you play with being? Like, 
you're calling forth, you know, like when you're speaking to that part of the person who isn't afraid or who isn't shut down or who, who, who wants to play or who, um, you know, that part that isn't dead, you know, the, the live part. When you're speaking to that and watering it, you know, and, and, and putting attention on it and starting to grow. And, like, it's never dead. Mm-hmm. Dormant may be never dead. Yeah. So, you mean the whole or the part? The part. So the part that's dormant, you're waking it up. So in waking it up, like you're working with being. You're being, you know, there's resonance happening, there's alignment, there's... I don't know about that, Clint. I don't know if I'm working with being. Mm -hmm. To the exclusion of doing or action. You know, let me say, let me language it and see if, if this makes sense. I think that what I work with is movement sequences. Mm-hmm. So, on just a very sort of nuts and bolts practical level, I've watched people and I watch where they move and where they obstruct their movement. Okay. I watch that in the physical body, in the emotional, energetic body, in the cognitive body, in the spiritual body. I watch for where they move and where they stop moving. When they stop moving, they're scared and they're defensive. When they're moving, they're playing. They're, they're playing, well, they're either working or playing for resting, but usually I don't observe that so much. So, the task then is to unobstruct the obstructed movement sequence. And there's a couple ways to do that. One is to actually exaggerate the obstruction to ask them to be conscious of it and just even do it more. Mm-hmm. I will not breathe fully. Mm-hmm. I will not, you know, and just really get in alignment with the part of themselves that's saying no or the part of themselves that's scared. The other thing is to uh, practice with just dropping it. Just just dropping it. You know, a lot of a lot of this this shit that people carry around can benefit from just, you know, asking people to drop it. They'll really do it a lot of times if you can create a good environment. So a person comes around and hangs out with you for a couple of days on the weekend, and, they, and in that space you ask them to drop it, and they agree to do that because it's safe, and they've got spare energy and time and neurons. And, and so in that space they do that. And then when they go home, like, like then what when they go home? Well, A lot of this obeys the sort of neurological laws of learning in the sense that when, like, you know, when you remember what it was like to ride, learn to ride a bike, you know, the first time you got on, you know, there's a lot of falling over. And then there's this, like, the first 20 seconds when you stayed up and you never did that before. And the, the problem was, was it was almost like a random accident. You don't know how you did it, right. and you can't repeat it yet. <clears throat> right. And then you're able to, after keeping at it, you're able to repeat it. And then you're able to repeat it consistently in a fairly friendly environment mm-hmm. or neutral environment. Like, you're able to, to bike, but only on straight aheads. Okay. 
and then you begin to take on more uh, challenging or stressful environments. And then the, the, the last level of learning, really, the last level of transformation on that level is that you're able to duplicate the new learning even under stress. And so it's really important for us to realize that when people go home after a workshop, they're going into stress. They're going into the system the way it used to work, the way they come to expect, you know, everyone else around you expects you to be the old self. And so you're automatically putting yourself into a stress situation. So I think it's really important to help people practice enough in that in that intensive environment so that they're ready. They're they're at the learning stage where they can practice under stress or not expect themselves to be good at the higher stress situations yet. Because you've got to do one or the other because I don't see at this point any kind of violation of that law of learning. Um, I mean, I, I, I've heard of it, but I think it's pretty rare. You know, right. Paul being struck down on the road to Damascus, right? The guy, the, one of the apostles. Yeah. You know, he was a creepy woman, and, you know, God just went, you know, and he got Christianized or whatever you say, and, he, you know, just a lightning bolt, and that was it, and he was transformed, and, you know, happened to him, I suppose. Don't see it very often. Yeah. For all of us that are schmucks, we got to do the learning curve. The learning curve. When you, um, how do you teach somebody to be able to observe another person's emotional body and spiritual body and nervous body? Mm-hmm. You know? That's really fun. I really would like to do relatively easy to see the physical body and instructions in the physical body in that fairly quick learning. But what I'll do is you, you go from there, from physical matter, and you watch how the next thing you do is to watch how the matter is vibrated. And that's starting to look at the energy body. And then once you get used to looking at the energy body, then you can see the energy around the person, not just in their tissue. You can see the backside of the body even when you're not looking at it, things like that. So you're not as confined to sort of the mechanical physics of the situation, the Newtonian physics of the situation. So first look at the physical tissues, get comfy there, get certain amount of skill there, then you watch how the tissue vibrates grossly and finely, and that's starting to get into the energy body. And I actually experience the energy body as the hardest one to teach, Hmm. because the cognitive body, you can just, it's fairly straightforward in terms of where your thinking is moving and where it's not, where you're in a fixed position in a core belief and where you're in a, um, a belief system that is constantly fed or bathed or nourished by new data and is permeable to that data mm-hmm. rather than a fixed position that needs to avoid data, incoming data. In the spiritual body, there's, um, I think there that the, the quality of intervention is in Chal- sort of challenging any 
state in which you're holding a kind of fragmented um, any state in which you're holding a uh, you're holding a small view you're holding a um, a view that cannot be applied to anything outside your own body or your own family or your own tribe or something that that what the state that you're holding can encompass that which is technically outside you beyond you so you're looking for a, a constriction in a, in a attitude or regard that, that Mm -hmm. keeps you confined to a mm -hmm. smaller domain than a... Mm -hmm. Right. Than a, mm -hmm. And you're not functioning at a bigger perspective. Mm -hmm. And then, so you, you're actually seeing that in a person. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's like your spiritual body, that's mm -hmm. what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. So then well, you can see where they're mm -hmm. stuck. Or like, you know, right. you're stuck with it, obstructed. obstructed. Yeah. Where, the, where they're not moving. Right. It's not moving. Right? Mm -hmm. Not playing. Really. Yeah. Because the universe is about movement. As far as I can tell, yeah, it's the main organizing principle. Mm -hmm. Relationship, transformation, mm -hmm. position, all They're that. They're all moving. Yeah. What's your favorite thing to give people to tell them, like to go do, like you know, in terms of like movement sequences? You said, but I don't necessarily mean like right in your presence, like maybe homework or breathing, know, breathing stuff. What do you tell them? That every moment requires its own breath. And that it's actually really fun to learn to breathe differently, like a fingerprint into each moment. That a good breath that matches the moment is the best, the best. <laughs> And then, like that seems to me like each moment passes with the breath. Just like the breath, breath. And it really dies. The good breath. breath dies well. Yep. The breath dies well? Mm hmm Yeah. A good breath, it knows how to die. 